Welcome to the Millennium Counseling Center podcast, where hope is yours, it's time to soar. I'm your host, Oren Madison. It's time to rise above and celebrate healing, hope, and recovery with the Millennium Counseling Center team. Special thanks to Kaz Source, who helps us with the production of our podcast. If anybody needs any help or looking into podcasts, please reach out to Kaz Source at kazcontent.com. Hi, everyone. This is Oren Madison and Derek Bilsma from Millennium Counseling Center. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, today we welcome to the podcast Kelly Kitley from Serendipitous Psychotherapy and uh, a wonderful therapist in Chicago. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, so today's podcast, we, uh, we welcome Kelly into this. She's a, an expert in mental health and, and recovery in Chicago um, because we're, we're seeing that during these trying times, um, so many of our clients are finding themselves in kind of challenging, challenging moments with, with what to do with their recovery and how to navigate it. Um, and we thought that we would kind of just start another, another conversation um, about how to, how to best help people in our community. This conversation that we found ourselves in is, is there a difference between abstinence and recovery? And, uh, and so that's going to be another focus of, of today's podcast. So Derek, tell me a little bit about kind of how you conceptualize uh, abstinence and recovery with the work you do with your clients. Yeah, I think that uh, for me, uh, you know, I think that abstinence is necessary. Uh, I think that there's kind of different uh, levels of dealing with these types of issues. And I think that to start off with, then we, you know, you, you need to have abstinence so you can make sure that you're not being clouded by uh, when we're talking about substances and things like that, that you're not being clouded by those things so you can continue on and do more work. And I, I guess I would say, so I think it starts with abstinence. And then beyond that, I think there's a lot of uh, additional work you can do that uh, would kind of qualify in, in my world as recovery, which uh, can include a lot of different things. It can include therapy, it can include some sort of support groups. I think it can include uh, mostly working on yourself. And I guess the, if I was to define it, I would say uh, just continuous efforts and trying to be the best human being you can be. And a lot of times that revolves around being trustworthy and being reliable and being transparent. And so I think that as you continue down that path of recovery, then those are the things that, uh, that you continue to work on uh, as, a, as your own person to try to um, you know, evolve as a, as a person and, and, you know, certainly rectify some of the things that you may have been doing that you didn't feel good about. Um, and, you know, I guess at the end of the day, I think that one of the most important things that you get with recovery is a better feeling of self and, uh, you know, better self-esteem and better self-worth and just kind of how you feel about yourself uh, overall. Kelly, what do you think? I totally agree. And being able to take, you know, I think of recovery as like the Ritz Carlton of daily living um, and how, you know, what is on that list of things that you need to hit on a daily basis to ensure that you are living your best life. And that may come from, you know, 
absolutely the abstinence piece of not picking up is first and foremost, but then taking that to a deeper level um, and being able to work through past traumas or um, current relationships that may have been um, damaged during active using um, and just showing up on a continual basis um, in a way that you're clear-minded and you are well-intended. And a big part of that for a lot of the clients that I work with is um, a, a combination of spirituality and meditation as well. Um, and, and being able to quiet the mind and the negative chatter um, that sometimes comes when people stop using. Um, all of these feelings can, can rise up and all of these... Um, negative thinking and patterns and, and old ways of thinking um, need to be restructured. And um, some of those core beliefs that maybe we held on to while we were using, we need to actively shift. So uh, abstinence is the first piece and it's it oftentimes a very difficult piece. Um, and I like to say working a program in recovery isn't as difficult um, as the abstinence piece, but it's certainly a mindful practice of doing something every day to enhance the way that you're living. Yeah, one of the um, totally kind of on board with how both of you guys are talking about it. One of the ways that I have kind of come to, to see it the way that I do is by kind of listening to Gabor Mate, who talks about the, the use in whatever form that is, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, work, um, that the use is, is really the symptomology of kind of something kind of greater that's happening within a person. And so when it comes to abstinence, that's kind of the removal of the symptom, right? But then you kind of need to go into uh, that individual person and, and really figure out kind of what what kind of made that person, what set that person up to, to kind of have that challenge. And then that, that then becomes the, the next phase. So like you, like you talked about Kelly, that the, what comes first is abstinence um, and, and really kind of just trying to kind of really dampen it and eliminate that the symptom and then really take the time to look inward. Um, and, and that's really where the kind of the deeper recovery is. Absolutely. And, you know, addiction is addiction is addiction, no matter what. <laughs> Name the substance, right? I mean, it could be food, shopping, alcohol, drugs, sex, you know, like you had mentioned. Um, and I do find sometimes that um, clients have a hard time self-soothing when they remove whatever substance they're using to, to you know, uh, act out with. And oftentimes somebody may go from um, being abstinent from alcohol to then needing to include abstinence from another substance that they're using um, to try to make themselves feel better. Mm. Um, you know, for example, a lot of women I work with because women's mental health is my specialty um, might go from alcohol to then food. And, and maybe those two are, they, they can work through the alcohol um, in an abstinence-based program and, and the food can't be abstinence-based. 
because mm-hmm. um, um, you still need to eat. So being able to figure out how to have healthy relationship um, with that kind of substance. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that it, you know, I think that if you struggle with one thing, then the, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to struggle with other things, but I think you have to be uh, mindful of that and aware of that, that that's a possibility. And I think that that's one of the things that we talk about quite a bit is that, you know, there, there, there are certainly people who can, uh, you know, decide that they're not going to drink or use drugs anymore that can, do other things that potentially lead to gambling, like work, I mean, potentially lead to addiction, like uh, work or gambling or things like that. It's possible to to not necessarily, uh, you know, kind of use all those things in the same way. But I think the important part is that you have to be aware that those are potential pitfalls for you and, and kind of really make sure that you're, uh, you know, being intentional about the way that you think about those things and keeping an eye on them. Because like you said, Kelly, I think that it is common that people will, uh, you know, switch, switch things mm-hmm. and, and, you know, move over to something different as you, you know, you said, you know, soothing that, uh, that can then become their, you know, a problem of their own or is like on what Oren said is just a different symptom of the same issue. And uh, so I think that that's where kind of the true recovery work comes in because uh, it, hopefully if you are able to recognize these things and then you can, if there d- does become other pitfalls, then you can make sure that you're aware of that so that you're, you're not just switching problems and, uh, you know, switching areas that you have to concentrate on. It's more of an overall, uh, I guess, treatment model for that type of, of thinking that you may be caught up on where you're more likely to either be all in or all out, um, as opposed to kind of that middle ground that a lot of people find themselves able to stay in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the things I can kind of tell when I first meet with somebody kind of, are they there to, you know, stop a behavior or are they there because they really want to change kind of their life? Um, and they want to um, kind of go deeper with kind of, kind of why they are in the place that they're in. Um, and so if somebody's coming in and they, they just want to check off that box, stop that behavior. Um, I, I think that's, that's still a great reason to come into therapy and, and get support. Um, and hopefully, you know, throughout that process, they're able to see the greater benefit of um, kind of looking at all aspects of life rather than just that specific, um, like you had said, Kelly, acting out behavior. Um, mm-hmm. But some people just, they come in and they know. They know that something deeper is going on within them that's making them look outside of themselves for that relief, for that comfort. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's, you know, those clients are, are for whatever reason, have kind of uh, had that, that actualization within themselves um, that, that this is not just about the removal of, of a behavior of, of something, but it's, it really is about um, kind of healing themselves and, and helping them discover recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'd be curious to, to talk a little bit more with you guys about a recovery model, just because I'm sure there, there are people listening who may want to go for, you know, where, where maybe they've said, all right, I've, I've been abstinent 30 days. Now what? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. what does that look like then? Um, Mm -hmm. What do I need to add that, 
you know, whether it's, you know, clients that you've worked with in the past or um, any of us that identify with our own kind of recovery model, what that looks like, just so people can have an example of trying new things. Mm-hmm. Well, you brought up meditation earlier. I think that's, um, that's a really kind of important thing to kind of talk about early on with people because it, it's not something that people tend to gravitate right away. So uh, I, I tend to bring that up kind of in the first couple sessions. And it's normally after months of bringing it up uh, that they actually kind of begin to, um, to try it out. Mm. What's your and experience do you have- with that? any, do you recommend any specific apps or anybody that you particularly like? Yeah, I use uh, Calm and Headspace are the two apps I use. Um, I've got my kids onto the Moshi app, which is a great meditation for kids. Um, Yeah, yeah, I love that. And, um, but I, I think, you know, what, for me, what the meditation is about is being able to to have a deeper connection with the body and with the self because you know in order to really get a hold of abstinence you have to be really good at your impulse control you have to be really good at noticing when you're triggered um, Mm -hmm. and when you're susceptible to kind of cross over that threshold Um, and so that the meditation is kind of both really positive from a a preventative from for an abstinence um, program, but it also is really, really good from uh, being able to kind of get to know what your real challenges are. Um, because for a lot of us, you know, me included, it's, it's hard to sit down and, and really listen to what's going on inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I do oftentimes with folks that I'm working with, and I think this is very helpful for me, is I, you know, you, you kind of talked about a, a, a model. And I think that one thing is, is kind of recognizing uh, what kind of mode we're in and it kind of to oversimplify it, to break it into three kind of areas, which, you know, some of it can be how you define these things. But I think between feelings, thoughts, and actions. And, you know, I think that uh, what I've noticed is that, you know, feelings we really have zero control over. Um, You know, if I tell somebody right now to be happier than they've ever been in their life, they don't have the ability to do that. None of us do. And then as far as thoughts, I think we do have the ability to to think about the things we can intentionally think about something. If you want to think about, uh, you know, the, the Chicago Bears right now, you have the ability to do that. And then finally, with actions where, you know, if if you say, you know, raise your right arm, uh, can you do that? And so I think that one of the one of the issues that I see that people kind of get caught up in is is that we spend a lot of time and effort in trying to change our feelings, and it's the one thing that we can't really control. Uh, now we can affect it, um, but mostly through thoughts and actions, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, for instance, if you feel like you want to use, uh, then you know your th- you, you can you can even talk to somebody and they will say, I, you know, if I, if I'm thinking about it, I know I should not do that. Uh, And then that's followed up with actions to help keep you in that right mindset as opposed to falling into your feelings. So I think that no matter how long anybody's been in recovery, you're still going to feel sometimes like you'd like to drink or use drugs or do whatever it is that you were struggling with. Um, But, uh, but ultimately just trying to 
not feel that way generally uh, doesn't seem like a, a path that you're going to be able to be very successful at. Um, but you can, you know, kind of make sure that you're intentionally targeting your thoughts to make sure you're recognizing why it is that you don't want to do those things anymore. And then certainly your actions, which is, you know, kind of what you guys were talking about, I think, which can come in many forms. It can come in, like you said, going to therapy. It can, it can come into, uh, you know, being around other people in recovery. It can be support groups. It can be, uh, you know, exercise. It can be, you know, there's a lot of different actions that you can take that will support your recovery. But I think that, you know, like I said, one of the things that I work a lot on is just recognizing where you are, whether you're, you're in your feelings, your thoughts, or your actions, and continuously trying to uh, work the things that you actually have some control over. Mm. I love that. You said it, it's such a simple framework, yet it's not so simple when you're uh, Simple yet not easy. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually, one, I, I, I will sometimes, when I'm sitting with people, I'll draw a pie chart and you know, ask them, you know, if you break up this pie chart into those three areas, like where are you spending your time? And, and I'm not suggesting that your feelings aren't important because they are, but the effort to change our feelings just by wanting them to be different is, is not something that, at least that I am able to do. And I don't think most people are able to do as I, as I said, if it, you know, if I, if I feel like using and I, and I just say, I don't wanna feel that way, I don't wanna feel that way, it doesn't change the way I feel, I still may feel like using. Now, again, you can kind of uh, combat that with getting into the, the section of a pie chart where you're, you're in your thoughts as opposed to your feelings, and then that can lead you down the right path. Um, or again, you know, maybe the actions where you pick up the phone and call somebody who supports you, or you connect with somebody else who will remind you of, of why you're wanting to change your behavior. Um, but I think that many times when I see that people are struggling, it's that when, when I ask them that question on a pie chart, they'll, you know, admittedly be, you know, 80 to 90% in their feelings. And, uh, and ultimately that's a, you know, from a, from a recovery standpoint, then that can many times get you in trouble, particularly if you're making your decisions based on how you feel um, because, you know, feelings aren't necessarily, although they are all valid, they aren't mm -hmm. necessarily backed up factually or logically. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I'm reading one of Marsha Linehan's books right now for, you know, any lay people or anybody who don't know who she is, who developed dialectical behavior therapy and that being very action oriented too, and just how important mindfulness is um, and being aware of what's going on in the moment. And so much of anxiety and depression is you know, the anxiety about thinking uh, anticipatory anxiety, what hasn't happened yet. And the, then those depressive symptoms, um, maybe looking back on things with regret um, that can create these feelings. So just being in the present moment, um, you know, as simplistic as eating a meal with your feet on the ground and tasting your food and, you know, whatever behavior you're engaging in, being really present with that behavior, taking a shower, going for a mindfulness walk, um, you know, certainly engaging in conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Kelly, um, kind of what, you know, if someone came into your office or someone logged into a Zoom call with you and, and said, okay, um, I, I'm, I'm sober, uh, I'm abstinence, but, you know, I'm, I'm uh, 
I know there's something, I know there's more to this. You, you've talked about certain things, kind of what, what do I need to do? What, what would you, what would you say to them? Well, I would, you know, I use a strengths perspective by identifying what's working well for somebody already. Um, you know, a lot of times people are doing things already that help contribute to their recovery that they don't identify as necessarily a recovery action. Um, I, I almost always have clients that I'm working with start off with some journal entries and just being mindful and aware of thoughts and behaviors and structuring a day um, and trying to implement things because you know a lot of <laughs> a lot of us whether we're in a pandemic or not are really busy and the idea of asking somebody to add more to their already busy plate can feel really overwhelming so being able to find out you know where can you add a walk in where you're listening to a meditation um, for 20 or 30 minutes in between your work day or can you lay down and listen to a meditation before you go to bed um, you know, this idea of meditation, I think sometimes people are resistant because they have a, a misunderstanding of what it is, that it has to be mm -hmm. totally silent and you have to mm -hmm. have this um, incredible experience. And so much of it is just calming down and breathing. Um, so those are usually some things that I really start out with um, and building kind of a treatment plan of recovery. What are some things people feel like they can commit to um, on a daily basis to, to enhance their overall functioning. Yeah. yeah and sure. I think, I think I agree with that completely. And, you know, one of the, when, when people are working through our intensive program, one of the things that we do is we kind of, uh, notate the, you know, my, my belief is, is that you need to do several of these things that you consider uh, you know, recovery related each day. But I think that sometimes people think that those have to be, you know, very specific things. And I think that it, the key is, is that, you know, you can use many things that will, you know, you can relate to your recovery um, that aren't necessarily something that an outsider would think is directly related to it. And I think in an exercise is a great example. You could be somebody who exercises daily, but I think if you're uh, mindful of understanding that this is something that is helping you work towards your recovery, then that can be another one of those things that you do on a daily basis that is helping with your recovery. I think that I rec you know, recommend that people do four to six things a day that uh, kind of help them connect to their recovery work. And mm -hmm. those things can vary quite a bit. They can be, you know, they can be meditation, they can be going for a walk, they can be, you know, connecting with somebody else. They don't have to be something that is, you know, that you initially would uh, kind of, uh, you know, think of as recovery work. But I think that if you're, if you're mindful of the fact that, it, that this is helping you in that regard and you kind of recognize that and they're intentional about that, then I think those things can be very valuable, even if you're already doing them just by changing the way you look at it and, you know, looking at it as another path to or another way that you can get to where you want to go. Mm. Well, and that also brings up for me in, in listening to you say that is, is sometimes people ask, you know, when are you recovered? Huh. And like in, in eating disorder treatment, you know, that, there, that tends to be a big thing. You know, have you recovered from an eating disorder or are you in recovery? And, you know, exercise is a, a great example to use for that as well. It's like, 
I don't think anybody reaches a point or I have yet to meet somebody, you know, who is trying to take care of their whole health who say, I got, you know, I got to a point in my life where I just felt like I didn't have to exercise anymore. Um, you know, that that is something that needs to be practiced on a, a couple times a week basis to have the benefits. And my belief is that, you know, being in recovery is a lifelong process. We don't arrive and say, all right, I think I'm good. Um, and feel free to challenge me on that. But um, I know there's, there's a, a difference in belief system within our our business about that? Not for me. I, I totally agree with you. And actually, I think that one of the things is, is when somebody's in early recovery, I think that there's, you know, many people who want to be recovered. I think that that's what the, you know, you're hoping that at some point there's a graduation date and that you are recovered. <laughs> uh, but I think the reality is, is that people that are in long-term recovery would never want to be recovered. They, they, yeah, they don't yeah. want to be recovered because it's, it, it, it's, it's continuous growth. And so you, you don't want to get to that point because I think that after a while it stops becoming work and it just becomes the way that you live your life. And, uh, and, and because there's so much value in it and because things get better and it doesn't mean that there's not hard things in life, there still are. But from a standpoint of you know, that, that, you know, the, the, the difficulties that you have in, you know, prior to recovery, I think that, you know, people in long-term recovery will say that they, they don't want it. They don't want to get to that point because that means that all the benefits would, would kind of stop at that point. And, and I think that, so, you know, one of the things I wish that I could pass on to the people that I work with is I, I wish you could know how it feels, you know, down the line to really truly be in recovery, because if you did, then, this would be, you know, you know, you'd, you'd almost like to be able to like share your screen with somebody um, and, and show them what the future can look like, because if they can see that, then the motivation to want to work through recovery and to kind of try to, you know, continue to grow in that way. I think that the motivation is much easier. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish we could switch it so people in early recovery would be able to feel the same way that people in long term recovery did, because then I think we'd have. Uh, I think recovery would be a lot easier uh, and a lot more easier to get motivated to, to do the work because the payoffs are so great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, maybe you can work on some kind of app that like shows what that <laughs> screen looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> maybe people would be more apt to say, oh, I do. I want that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that's a tough part of it, right? I think that in the beginning, you're, you're, you know, that's why early recovery is so difficult because you're, you're going, you're just having to trust people when they tell you that life is going to get better. And until you see it for yourself, um, and, and again, that's why I encourage people to use, you know, what I refer to as like personal historical data until you, until you start to see your own life getting better, then you have to find somebody that you trust, which is why it's so important to meet either whether it's a therapist or somebody else in recovery or, or somebody who you truly trust and believe they know what they're talking about because in early recovery that's what you need to do is you need to trust somebody else and that's a really difficult thing to do um, when you're trying to kind of you know change the way you live your life mm -hmm. well i'm sure we could go on for another couple hours kelly will spare you from that i truly believe like what this conversation is so important because once somebody's removes that that, that coping skill, right, that becomes an addiction, you know, once that's gone, their life doesn't auto automatically become amazing. And so what comes next is, is recovery. And, you know, you guys spoke about some 
incredible ways for people to kind of what to transition to next after they've started abstinence, after they started kind of becoming sober. Um, and hopefully that will lead to many more people realizing um, how important it is to just keep, keep putting in the work um, because it's going to make their life so much more enjoyable. Yeah. Just planting seeds, you know, we get this, get this thing going. It's such an important conversation. Absolutely. Uh, Kelly, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, maybe, maybe down the road, we'll, we'll, you'll want to come back and, and join us for another one of these. Um, and uh, thanks, Derek, for, uh, for all the insight. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you, Kelly. I really appreciate you being here. I know that you're very well known and respected in the field, and we feel uh, lucky to have you here in this conversation with us. And I know you've helped a lot of people and um, through your own, through your book and your vulnerability and your ability to kind of share your own experiences, I think is, uh, you know, many people that I know personally that you've helped quite a bit. And we just appreciate the work you do and appreciate you joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I'll put that in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you have any more questions about uh, this topic, uh, abstinence and or recovery, um, or anything related to your own mental health or addiction, feel free to reach out to us on our uh, social media pages or our website at millenniumhope.com. Thank you for listening to the Millennium Counseling Center podcast. Where hope is yours, it's time to soar. Continue along your journey of healing, hope, and recovery with us next week. If you want to learn more about mental health, recovery, or if you just need someone to talk to, send us a message on Instagram or fill out the contact form on our website at millenniumhope.com. We are here to talk.